Morning, church. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here. I've had a lot of coffee, and I'm feeling kind of scrappy, so this ought to be fun. Uh, A couple of pieces of information before we get started. First of all, uh, we love to take a big church and make it small through the ministry of small groups. Pastor Kevin Brearley and Ryan Irvin lead our small group ministry. And I want to encourage you, if maybe God has encouraged you to take a, a next step, a spiritual step, uh, one of the ways you can do that is by hosting a small group. And in your program today, there's information about a training that's coming for hosting a small group. We would love to have you be engaged in that. Our goal this year as we come into the new year is to have lots of capacity for new people to get plugged in with new groups. And so if you'd like to engage in that, we'd love to help facilitate that as well. Starting on January the 9th, one of the compassionate areas that our church works deeply in is in the area of human trafficking. This is something that happens right in our backyard We can't ignore the problem. We can't push the problem away. There are 27 million slaves still enslaved in our modern world, but human trafficking into the sex culture happens right here in Whatcom County. And we want to do everything we can to try and eradicate that issue. And one of the ways we're doing that is by hosting what we're calling the Sold Experience. And so in your program today is information, starts on January the 9th, it goes through the weekend, and if you'd like to come and take an hour, we'd like for you to experience what a day in the life of a modern slave actually looks at in the hopes that you'll be compelled to want to get involved with the issue. So if you could take a look at that information in your program, that would be fantastic. So as we stand here on the edge of a brand new year, kind of peeking into 2014, before we go forward, I want to take an opportunity to go backwards just a little bit. In fact, we're going to do kind of a retrospective. We're going to go back 25 years. Some of you will remember the year 1989. I thought it was an absolutely great year. If you weren't around or you've forgotten about 1989, let me just reacquaint you with this wonderful year. 1989, the number one movie was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I mean, we found out that Indy had a dad. Who would have known it was Sean Connery, right? The number one song was Like a Prayer by Madonna. It had nothing to do with intercession or talking to Jesus, just in case you were wondering, okay? The number one toy was a Nintendo Game Boy. And if you had one of these... Your biggest job was figuring out how not to share it with anybody in your classroom. The number one book, excuse me, in 1989 was Clear and Present Danger by Tom Clancy. How many of you actually read it? Hands all over the room. That's great. It came in one format, paper, okay? You actually had to buy it, open up and read the thing and hold it in your hand. All right? The fastest computer was a 486. Anybody remember having one of those dinosaurs on your desk? Right? And this was, this was state of the art because you got to use the little floppies, not the big five and a quarter inch floppies. How many of you remember a five and a quarter inch? You are a dinosaur like I am. Congratulations. Okay? 1989 was the first time that this guy introduced a new product to us. It was called Windows and with it came Microsoft Office. It didn't work, but we all got an opportunity to buy it at that time. 1989 was also a huge year in the world. In 1989, the Berlin Wall collapsed, and we saw communism crumble and shake for the very first time. People got very excited about that. A group of students occupied Tiananmen Square in China, and this young guy in the far left-hand corner of the screen became, became an icon as he faced down and basically called for freedom in a country that was not free. Here on the home front, a ship called the Exxon Valdez sunk in Alaska decimated the ecosystem in Alaska and scared people very, very much because of the implications for our ecosystem. As well, 1989, San Francisco 
was shaken to the core by a record earthquake and it put the whole west coast on edge. And in 1989, I was really, really happy that I lived in Manitoba and not over here with you guys. 1989 was a year for a lot of people. Personally, it was a great year for me. I graduated from college. I got my first real job working for the Marriott Food Corporation. I was the food service director at Canadian Bible College in Regina, Saskatchewan. I married my college sweetheart. I got my first real apartment. I left my first real job and actually became a pastor, which I, is something that I have now been doing for 25 years. And when I graduated as a pastor from Briarcrest Bible College... My preaching professor, Dr. Paul Magnus, gave us a charge as young pastors. I will never forget his gravelly voice, his glasses pulled down. I'll also never forget his comb over. That just kind of sticks with me. Just don't do that, okay? Anyways, and I remember as he gathered this group of young pastors and gave us this charge, I remember him kind of looking over us. The look on his face basically communicated, you have no idea what you're getting yourselves into. And then he gave us as a gift, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. So in your outline, in your Bible, reading together, the Bible says this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Those verses have been my marching orders for 25 years. Those verses have grounded me in tough times. They've encouraged me and blessed me when things were going fantastic. These are the verses that I go to when I need courage because I've got to talk about the uncomfortable stuff. Let me tell you, these verses have encouraged me. Let me tell you what these verses do not do in my life. These verses do not make me want to run and hide. They don't make me want to build a bomb shelter in my backyard and just turtle up until the end of the world comes. These verses do not make me want to wrap my kids in bubble wrap and try and insulate them from all the stuff that's going on. These verses do not make me wring my hands or shake my head at just how broken the world is and how I'm just so frustrated with everything that's going on around me. These verses do not make me want to disconnect from the culture that God's placed me into. These verses make me want to engage these verses give me hope that in a world where pain and hopelessness is commonplace, that God has strategically chosen us as his plan A. And in case you don't know, there is no plan B. I love these verses because these verses convince me that God has placed us as the light of the world in the midst of the culture that we're in. And this one thing I know, in this much darkness, a little bit of light goes an awfully long way. And that's encouraging. The Apostle Paul speaks these verses to a young pastor. Timothy was struggling. Timothy was struggling to share a message in a culture that honestly didn't give a rip about God. Pastor Timothy was caught in the tension of telling people the truth when they didn't want to listen to anything that he had to say. 
So Paul, so Timothy's mentor, Paul, comes along and basically reminds him of some unbelievable truth that applies to every single person who's trying to follow Jesus in a culture that's not. You know what that means? That means these verses were written for us. So let's just tear them apart and put them back together again, all right? This is just straight out Bible. If you don't like what it says, write a letter to Jesus. Okay, here it comes. Paul says in verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Right out of the chute in chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, you're going to answer to God for your life and your message. We love to talk about the loving God who just wants to wrap everybody up in a warm hug and have a deep abiding relationship, all of which is true. Where we start getting uncomfortable is when God starts throwing the judge word around. Because we don't want to think about having to answer for anything. Paul just says it. A judgment will come. A judgment will come. So I got permission to share this. I was meeting with a person from our church the other day, and he asked me a question. The question was basically this. He said, so I'm in my mid-50s. I got divorced a couple of years ago, and now I'm kind of back on the dating scene. Here was the question. Do God's standards for sex still apply to me even though I'm no longer a virgin and I was just recently divorced? And my answer was, yes. It's the shortest meeting I've ever had. It's just a simple answer, right? Yes, they still apply. And what came next is what I normally experience. He starts listing off a number of reasons why he believes God's standards no longer apply to him because of his circumstance, culminating with this great catchphrase that we use a lot. But I have needs. To which I respond, what about your need to honor God with the body that he gave you? What about your need to be a godly man who follows scripture and unapologetically does exactly what God asked him to do? What about your need to understand that one day you're going to actually give an account for the decisions that you're making right now? What about your need to be a godly son to your heavenly father who at some point is going to judge your life in the way that you live it? Got real quiet. We're going to be judged. I don't like talking about it, but Scripture says it's true. I was watching Piers Morgan interview Pastor Rick Warren the other day, and the hot-button subject of the day came up, the subject of gay marriage. Piers Morgan asked what I thought was an unbelievably honest question. Piers Morgan asked Mark Warren, or Mark Warren, there you go. <laughs> That's our pastor. Anyway, Rick Warren, Piers Morgan asked Pastor Rick if he thought the day would ever come when he would shift his position about what he believes the Bible says about marriage? Honest question. Rick Warren said this, I cannot see that happening in my lifetime because I fear the disapproval of God more than I fear your disapproval or the disapproval of society. And so I can't change what I believe in my heart. God has said. He also said, I don't get to change what God says is right and what God says is wrong. And I believe God is very clear that all sex outside of marriage is wrong. Can I tell you something? That is not a popular message. You know what that will get you? That will not get you a hug on the street. That will get you a death threat in the mail. That's just the truth. He also said this, and I think it's important to add to this. He said, but the issue here is respect. 
While I may disagree with you on your views on sexuality, it does not give me the right to demean you, demoralize you, defame you, or turn you into a demon. And we're going to talk about the gracious part of that conversation in a minute. I mean, you could just feel the tension in that particular moment. The, what Pastor Warren was basically saying was, I'm going to give an account for my life someday, and God is going to judge me, and I am more concerned with His judgment than your opinion. Every single one of us is going to answer to God at some level. Just so we're completely clear, when I'm being judged for my life, none of you will get to sit in with the Trinity. And just so we're clear, when God and the Trinity are going over your life, I will not get to join as the fourth member of that committee. Just so we're completely and abundantly clear. Paul tells Timothy, you know what, you need to care more about the approval of God than the approval of people. Because ultimately, you're going to answer to God for your life. Still with me? Hanging with me? Let's go on to verse 2. Paul says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Just a reminder, he says all three. Some of us are like, yes, I'm going to correct some people. I'm going to rebuke a few people. That's what I want to do. And he says, no, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The word preach here has nothing to do with standing up in front of a church full of people with a microphone strapped to your head. In fact, the word preach here is a conversational term that literally means every single person in this room is supposed to preach. Okay? Now that doesn't mean you're going to get a podium and put it in the middle of your living room. Okay? But it does mean you are called to share the story of Jesus within your congregation, your family, your coworkers, your sphere of friendships. You don't get to bail on this one because you're shy. And I also need to remind you, every single one of us, as a follower of Jesus, is preaching 100% of the time. And we're either pushing people towards Jesus, or we're giving them very good reasons why they should have nothing to do with Him because of the level of hypocrisy in our lives. We're either pushing them towards or pushing them away 100% of the time. And Paul basically says this to Timothy, you must be ready to answer the tough questions with love and patience, regardless of what the answer may cost you. I mean, let's face it, the Bible describes, I'm going to pick on Christians all morning. So if you're just here checking this out, welcome to the circus, okay? It's good to have you on. But let's face it, when we look at the Bible, the Bible describes the body of Christ as exactly that, a body. But when I look at believers today, what are we mostly known as? Which body part? Probably a mouth, right? It's just a big set of teeth and gums that love to spew condemnation and judgment. Now, we try not to do that around here, but let's face it, that's the reputation. And Paul is saying here, hey, don't, don't misinterpret this. The mouth's important. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we have to preach a message all of the time that shows people the beauty of Jesus. But I'm going to contend that that message will fall on deaf ears if we only engage the mouth. I believe the Bible also says that the mind of preparation and learning has to be engaged. That the gentle heart of correction needs to be pumping. That, that the hands of gentle service need to be serving in the community. That if the bicep of a, rebu a rebuke is going to be flexed, that that also needs to be there with the loving hand of encouragement that's apparent and absolutely obvious. It takes the whole body to share a message so that it doesn't fall on deaf ears. So we need to be prepared to share the truth, but after the truth is shared, the Bible says we are to be exceptionally patient 
In fact, I would say this. We need to be patient to the same level that God was patient with us. And I don't know about you, but that means very, very, very patient. Because that's how God dealt with me. We need to be patient with people. And the reason is because very often when we share truth, the reactions are filled with emotion. And when just emotion flashes out, what covers that is when we have a long-standing relationship with people that allows us to speak the truth and preach with great patience and careful instruction. Let's go on to verse 3. All right? It says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So Paul tells Timothy, hey, here's the deal. People are going to turn away from sound doctrine. They're just not going to care what the Bible says anymore. And you're going to have to deal with that. And and you can bemoan that fact and withdraw, or you can press in and engage and attempt to have the conversation. Paul basically says to Timothy, you must be willing to pay the price of sharing an unpopular message in a culture that believes you're absolutely misguided. I've been blessed with a lot of friendships. In fact, one of the things that's interesting is I have people in my life who who have a friendship with me at great risk. Because in their world, being a friend of an evangelical pastor is just not a cool decision to make. So I get to hang out with some people. You'd probably be surprised with some of the people um, that are my good friends. I've got a young guy in my life right now who believes absolutely nothing of what I believe. In fact, in a very kind way two weeks ago, he called me a misguided idiot. (laughs) Then he gave me a big hug. You know, that's kind of how it worked, right? He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't believe in the church. He thinks I am earnestly misguided. But what is amazing to me is this. When he has a question about morality, guess who he calls? They ain't calling you. You think I should sleep with my girlfriend? No. I'm having a lot of very brief conversations these days. No. She's one of God's daughters. No! Exercise a little Beyonce theology. Put a ring on it, okay? That's how it's supposed to work. Some of you got that. Most of you are like, be, be who? All right? Engage with the culture, okay? All right. See, he doesn't believe anything. You know what I admire about this young guy? He's actually a great picture of what Paul is encouraging Timothy about. He hasn't surrounded himself with people that just tell him what he wants to hear. I think that takes great courage. Let me just beat up on the Christians here for a second. How do we call ourselves missional when we don't have anybody in our lives that ever challenges our faith? How do we call ourselves loving when we withdraw and withhold from people the opportunity to engage in eternal life? I mean, if you're one of those people that say, I just don't know anybody that I'd ever have a conversation like that about. Like, really? What part of the Great Commission don't you understand? How do you call yourself in good conscience a follower of Jesus when you never engage with anybody who doesn't know who Jesus is? I'm not sure how we reconcile that. I mean... Paul is just so unbelievably practical here. He just tells Timothy, look, here's what's going to happen. People are going to stop listening to the Bible, and they're going to alienate. People who even listen to the Bible are still going to alienate. But, but, but Timothy, here's what you need to understand. 
people are going to want to surround themselves with other people who tell them exactly what they want to hear. I mean, has anyone else noticed that when we step out of God's protection and we do what we know we're not supposed to do, that we tend to surround ourselves with people who will justify our actions? That we just just want people around us who will say, oh, no, you're good, you're good, no big deal. It's fine, you can go and do that. You have needs. It's fine. I mean, it's just, you've heard the little phrase, right? Misery loves company. So whenever I, this is just my, my tendency. When I step out from under God's protection, you know what I want? I want people to surround me and go, Grant, you're right. You're right with that wrong attitude. You're right with that sinful decision. You're right, you're right, you're right. I mean, we see this all the time, right? People who are struggling in their marriage, they tend not to gravitate towards people who are in healthy marriages. No, they want to hang around with people who've had a bad experience in a relationship and want to talk smack about their ex, right? That's exactly what we want for. I mean, let me ask you this question. If you're disgruntled at work, do you go out for lunch with your managers? No. You go to the lunchroom so you can whine and complain with other people who are ticked about the fact that management, that they don't know anything, and if they would just hand over the keys to the company, everybody else would be so much happier. Nod your head if I'm telling the truth, okay? Paul just says, look, when you surround yourself with people who want to tell you what you want to hear, the element that's automatically missing is the truth. Therefore, it makes logical sense that I should have some people in my life who love me enough to tell me what I don't want to hear sometimes. God's blessed me with some godly people who will walk up alongside of me and like, hey, Grant, eyes on the cross, hand on your Bible, get back to it. You know, I love the faith conversations that make me feel uncomfortable. I love conversations that push me towards having to stand firmly on the Bible. Honestly, I feel more like a genuine follower of Jesus in those moments. I love those defining moments when I've got no choice but to say, you know what? You can call me an idiot if you want to. I believe in Jesus. I believe He was the Son of God and God the Son. I believe in the Bible, even the parts that make me squirm and the parts that I don't like. I do believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, even though I'm not exactly sure how that whole thing came down. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe God has moral standards. I believe that God says there is a right and there is a wrong. I believe that God cares intimately about the details of my life. I do believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. I believe that God sends fish to swallow up rebellious prophets, to swim them back in the right direction, and then pukes them up on the beach so that they learn their lesson. I believe that a short little man can take a sling and throw a rock and take out a nine-foot giant just because God says he does. I, I, I believe all of this stuff from the front of the cover to the back of the cover, even though you think I may be crazy. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground in the world may be sinking sand, but this is the truth, and that's where we have decided to stand. Can I get an amen from somebody? Now, let's be honest. Some people say, you're nuts. There are people, right now, he's like, Grant is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's the bottom line. Paul says the world's belief that faith in Jesus is a myth is actually a myth. And let's face it, there's hundreds of myths swirling in our culture. And one more time, what I don't want is for you to walk away going, oh dear, oh dear, the world is just, no. Turn the light on and shine. 
So what are some of the myths that we're going to run into? I mean, just this is normal, real life, right? How about the myth of moral relativism? This is the myth that believes sexually, I can do what I want with who I want, when I want, that God doesn't care because I got needs and God wants me to be happy. That's the myth. You know, I, I talk to young people all of the time to try to find a skate around this particular one, and we always end up having the same conversation. I believe that God places loving boundaries around things that are both sacred and dangerous, and sex is both. It's sacred and it's dangerous when we take it outside of God's plan. So if that's the myth that people are turning to, what's the truth? I believe the truth is God has the best plan when it comes to sex. I believe he does. Here's another myth, modern therapeutic deism. If you think I'm just making this stuff up, I'm not, okay? So a group of researchers went out and polled thousands of 20-somethings between the age of 20 and 30 and basically said, tell us what you believe. Tell us what you believe. And they basically boiled it down into these five elements. So a person who believes modern therapeutic deism, deism believes this. And you'll notice it starts off really, really good. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Amen. Got the first part right. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Okay. As taught in the Bible and by all of the other world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Okay. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life, except, of course, when God is needed to solve a problem. Uh-huh. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. So we hear that and we're just like, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, I don't know what to do about that. Instead of just saying, you know what, this is the prominent belief system among 20-somethings in America today. So if that's the myth, what's the truth? What's the truth? The Bible says there is a God. And that God wants people to live a life with purpose. But that the goal of life is not to just be happy. The goal of life is to honor God. And God is intimately involved in the details of our lives. When it's going well and when it's going poorly. And God, more than anything, wants us to enter into a deep abiding relationship with Him. God wants us to choose Him. God wants us to live to His standard because His standard is the absolute best way. And the Bible actually says people go to heaven... Good people and bad people go to heaven when they put their faith in Jesus because he's good, loving, forgiving, and kind. And the Bible is actually so bold as to say, if you think you're good, you're actually misguided in believing your own myth because there's no one righteous, not even one. In fact, the only one that's ever been good is Jesus Christ himself who lived a perfect life. And the amazing part of salvation is that he opens the door so you can live your life based on his perfect record. I mean, that's just the stuff of it. Here's another one. How about unreciprocated tolerance? This myth says, I want you to tolerate my life choices, but I will not tolerate it if you reflect a biblical position on my life choices. Unreciprocated tolerance. So let's just, I mean, if we're going to go there, let's go there, all right? I get called out on this one all of the time. Because people often come, I'm not sure exactly why, but they come and they want a validation of a sinful choice. 
And when I call it sin, by the way, I didn't invent that term. Like, I didn't create, I'm like, I want to create an offensive word that's just going to tick people off every time I say it. I have never had that conversation in my brain. I found that word in my Bible. It's there a lot to the point that it makes me unbelievably uncomfortable because it seems to be having to deal with me every time I read about it. So people want a validation of a sinful choice. And when we call it sin, because the Bible calls it sin, you get a label attached to you. You are intolerant. And when I am branded as intolerant, my challenge is always the same to whoever it is that I'm talking to. And I try to do it gently, carefully, and lovingly. But I basically say, you know what? You don't like the fact the Bible calls something you're involved in sin. And you call me intolerant when I stand with the Bible. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to practice your own worldview. And tolerate the fact that I stand on top of the Bible when it comes to forming my opinion about that particular activity. I'm just giving you an opportunity to do what it is that you want to do. So let's do that and let's continue a respectful conversation and a dialogue as we walk through this together. Because I don't get to disrespect you or demean you or demonize you and I'm asking that you would grant me the same grace. Welcome to the 21st century, my friends. This is where we are called and challenged to continue in the conversation and not just boil it down to, to, to that oversimplification of, you know what, you know what you need to do? Stop it. But let's have a conversation and actually, what does God actually say and why? And where do we find his loving heart in the godly standards that he's placed around his children? Okay, what time we got? Oh, I got to wrap this thing up. Oh my goodness. Okay, all right. Paul tells Timothy, verse chapter four, number four, all right? But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. You've got to be passionate about keeping your head in every situation, paying the price for your faith, talking to people about Jesus, and then actually doing the ministry. So let me put this to you in modern language. You ready for it? Chill, suck it up, do the work, and get it done. Not clear enough for everybody? Okay. So let's just break them down. Chill, all right? Relax in the fact that God is in control, okay? Don't get all wrapped up in fear. So tired of believers wringing their hands, listening to doomsday prophets, digging a bunker in their backyard because you're just afraid of what's happening at the end of the world. Just so we're completely clear, you've heard me say this before. At the end of the world, whether you're chicken little or not, if the sky does fall and a piece of it breaks off and lands on your Shrek-sized head, you actually get to be excited if you know Jesus because the second you die, the, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That would be considered an eternal upgrade, which is a very, very good thing. So in the meantime, don't just wring your hands and go, I don't know, the world is just falling apart at the seams. Instead, enter in, do exactly what it is that you've been called to do and relax. The last time I checked, Jesus is completely in control. Nothing happened today that made Jesus sit up in his throne and go, wow, I did not see that coming. <laughs> did anyone see the sunrise this morning? Do you know who painted that picture? The God who is in control. And if your God is in control, for the love of Jesus, live like it. 
I got one amen. Thank you for the support, all right? Number two, <laughs> suck it up. Is that blunt enough? There we go, right? The Bible says you're going to run into stuff in this world, but you need to suffer well. We don't go through the stuff of life as a follower of Jesus without hope. So let me be blunt again. Stop whining and complaining about the state of the world. Get off Facebook. Stop trolling the internet for the top 25 reasons why the world is falling apart. Stop contributing to the problem. And for the love of Jesus, become a part of the solution. Let's keep going. Do the work of talking about Jesus. So actually, here's my encouragement to you this year. Go there. Go there. Have the conversation. Be the light. Don't be a jerk. But be the light and enter into the dialogue of this tension between God and culture. That's what a missionary does. And I don't know if you know this or not, but God's called every single one of us to be missionaries into our culture. So go there. Some of you are like, I'm scared. Go there. I don't think I know enough yet. We're never going to know enough. Go there. Be honest. Be open. Answer the question. If you don't know the answer to a question, say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll do my best to go and find an answer for you. Have the long, ongoing conversation. For all you know, God may show up in the middle of it and transform a human being. How about the last one? Get it done. Paul's basically saying to Timothy, look, I need you to talk and keep talking. I need you to model consistency. Don't be another walking example of hypocrisy. Be an example of consistency. Serve wherever you can. Process well the things that are going on around you. Ask the hard questions and be willing to give the hard answers. So here we go. We've been talking about the state of the world. Can I be honest? I am more encouraged about the state of the world today than I have ever been. Because people are truly seeking truth. They've got lots of other options to go to. But I'll tell you what, I have different conversations in 2014 than I was ever having back in 1989. And I believe it's because God is awakening people and they're beginning to see that some of the myths that they've been following leave them empty and alone. So they're asking questions. And we have got to be there to answer with the answer that matters, the answer of Jesus. So I'm unbelievably encouraged. So this weekend, we kind of talked about the state of the world just a little bit. Next week, we're going to talk about the state of the church. And normally, um, I stand up here and say, this is the state of the church. That's somewhat scary, because I think as a pastor, sometimes we can be the most clueless as to the real state of the church. So instead of telling me telling you what the state of the church is, next week, I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to tell me what the state of the church is. We did something at the end of the year with our staff, we actually ran kind of a prototype self-assessment to find out where we really were on our spiritual journey walking towards Jesus. And the truth is, it doesn't matter where you are on the journey. What really matters is, are you willing to take that next step to move ahead in your journey with Jesus? I don't care if you're an infant. I don't care if you're sprinting around the track. The question is always, what is God calling you as a step of faith to step out and move to whatever it is next that he has for you. So next week, we're going to give you some details. In fact, I'm going to try and motivate every single one of you to take about 15 minutes at a computer and do a self-assessment as to where you're really at in your spiritual walk. 
it's confidential, it's anonymous. Honestly, the only person that really, whose opinion really matters about it is Jesus's, because he's the one who will judge. That's what Scripture says. But we'd like to hear from you where you think you're at. And then we want to be able to come alongside and say, if this is where you see yourself, how can we help you take that next great step on your spiritual adventure with Jesus? I mean, that sounds both scary and absolutely fun to me. So I'm going to try and talk you into doing it. I hope you'll come along and walk through that with us. And next week, Pastor Todd and the crew, we're all going to be here. We're going to talk about how we're going to engage that particular mechanism as we seek to be obedient to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, thank you for your word, even when it makes us squirm. Thank you for an opportunity to come together as a church family and to open our hearts to what it is that you want to say. Father, as we enter right now into worship, I pray that we would take a moment to just simply reflect on what it is that you are calling us to do. God, would you give us the courage to go there? Would you give us the courage to lovingly, patiently confront the myths that so many people are buying into in our modern world? Father, would you allow us to be salt and light? God, would we shine brightly in the world that you've placed us in? Would you allow us as salt to bring flavor into a world that seems unbelievably bland? God, would you do in us what we can't do for ourselves? Lord, as transformation begins to ripple out of our own lives, we will give you all of the honor and all of the glory. Because truly, on Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And we pray these things in your matchless and wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So we're going to re-enter into worship. Not that we ever left it. But we're going to re-enter into worship. I'm going to ask you to use this time as Mike leads us. Let's just reflect for a few moments on what it is that God may be calling us to do. As we stand on the edge of a brand new year, 2014. God bless you guys.